Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. No guests today, but due to popular demand, we've brought back Jeff as a co-host. Jeff, welcome. Thanks. How's it going? It's going great. I'm uh, gearing up for a little bit of travel, getting ready to head to Calgary for the rodeo and then home a bit in Colorado and giving a talk next week, but uh, otherwise enjoying the summer. Wait, what rodeo are you referencing? It's the Calgary Stampede, one of the biggest in the world. And uh, I've been to the uh, what's the one in Wyoming called? The granddaddy of them all. Uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill way back in the day. Huh. Are your uh, listeners, should they expect you to be actual participating in this rodeo? You know, I got a <laughs> lot of I got a lot of cowboy gear, although I don't have any cowboy boots. I, I lost my cowboy boots. I left them once in a hotel and never bought them again. So maybe, maybe I'll re-up. Um, anyway, off topic. So today, what are we going to talk about? So, you know, a lot of the news media lately has been focusing on... Brexit. And thank God, not a single one of our clients emailed us about us. So kudos, clients. You know who you are. However, my mom did give me a text, and she's one of the the best contrary indicators. I love you, mom. She actually listens to the podcast, by the way. So uh, you're the best. But so we, I thought we'd talk a little bit about large market events, which people often confuse with black swans. And black swan is a popular term in the media, sort of like bubbles. We'll talk about bubbles in another podcast. Let's talk a little bit about black swans and and so get our terminology right. Really, black swans were popularized by Nassim Taleb. I actually met Nassim almost 10 years ago in 2007. We were speaking together at a conference in London called the Battle of the Quants. Super nerd fest, I can say that because I'm an engineer and nerd, but it, uh, it was a panel discussion and Zim was the keynote speaker. Well, my flight got delayed out of JFK for an entire day. So I slept in the airport that night, arrived in London, and let's call it three or four in the morning, already jet lagged, take a shower, drink some coffee, go straight to the conference. I put down probably 15 cups of coffee and I was a little nervous. So I was in my late 20s at the time. Don't remember anything I talked about at the conference, but do remember Taleb's keynote speech and that, you know, if you, the impression a lot of people get from Taleb in the media, and probably rightfully so, is that he tends to be a little, what's the right word, confrontational, you know, has a little bit of hubris. He's obviously very smart, but I love his books, particularly his first book. If you haven't read Fooled by Randomness, Get it, summertime reading, read all the rest of them. But Fool by Random is really one of the best books in, in investing. Anyway, the speech he gave was totally different. And Nassim and in person was totally different than the kind of media Taleb. He loves picking fights on Twitter. Huge advice. Don't, don't pick any fights with Taleb on Twitter. But a warm, humble, 
funny speaker, which I was not expecting. So I was all prepared to hate him, but I, I thought he was actually uh, a really great speaker. Anyway, so he wrote Fool by Randomness. He also wrote The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile. But he popularized this concept of black swan, namely the occurrence of utterly unforeseeable events that are thought of as not being possible based on previous experiences. So his definition of black swan, which we'll use, is an outlier outside the realm of regular expectations because nothing in the past can convincingly point to its occurrence. That's one. Two, the event carries an extreme impact. And three, Explanations for the occurrence can be found after the fact, giving the impression that it can be explainable and predictable. So a lot of commentators have latched onto this term to describe all sorts of financial markets events. However, the existence of these large outlier events are simply known as fat tail distributions in the financial market world. And it's been well documented for over 40 years. So Mandelbrot, Fama in the 60s were talking about this. So the media often says, well, you know, if the markets aren't normally dis distributed, well, no shit. Everyone's known this for 70 years. If you don't, you're simply not a student of history, but everyone's known this for a long time. So people have revisited this fat tail concept mainly because of the big two busts we've had in the U.S. in the past decade. Internet bubble bust, the global financial crisis, 08, 09. It's something that's been around for decades and you shouldn't be surprised by that. One of the biggest takeaways from a lot of things we talk about in market history is normal market returns are extreme. We talked about this in the podcast the other day where we said 75% of all U.S. yearly stock returns are either negative or greater than 15%. So while you may expect a 10% return in stocks, which is unreasonable, by the way, right now, we think, historically, that 0 to 10% range is the minority. It's not the norm, but it averages out to that, which makes it so tough for people to be to stick with it. If you think about it, bear markets are common. Markets can and do decline by 50 to 100%. So if you look at the return distributions, it's similar to a fractal system that follows a power law distribution. So stick with me for a second. All that means is it's kind of useful in describing events like earthquakes. So if you think of the Richter scale, we're based here in LA, get earthquakes a lot, haven't had a big one in a while, knock on wood. But a 4.0 is 10 times bigger than a 3.0 and a 5.0 is 10 times bigger than a 4. So people will say, hey, we had a, you know, a 5.0 earthquake. And then if you talk about a 6.0, it only sounds a little bit bigger, but in, in reality, that scale is 10 times worse. We'll post a chart to the, to the uh, show notes, but it's from a book called The Failure of Risk Management that kind of illustrates this inability of these Gaussian models to account for large outlier moves. So in a normal distribution world, a 5% decline in stocks should not have happened in the past 100 years. But in reality, it's happened nearly 100 times. Quick question for you. Back to that definition, I think you said or Taleb said, uh, it has an extreme impact. Uh, that's a little vague to me. And given what you just said about the randomness of market moves, a lot of times they are much greater than 20%, a lot of times negative. It, what's the real definition of what an extreme impact is? Well, so then you can talk about standard deviation events, what percent of the time, and, and then really just becomes semantics. So you could be like, well, maybe we consider a 1% outlier an extreme event or 0.1, but that's where the tails really start to come into play. Here's a recent example. We have farmland in Western Kansas, had an awesome weed harvest this year. Literally cutting the wheat. So this is like a year-long process, right? Planting, fertilizing, everything else going on. Literally cutting the wheat. So there's nothing less left to do. 
a combine essentially explodes, catches fire, nobody's hurt, thank God, essentially destroys the entire crop. Is that a black swan? No. I mean, it's foreseeable. It happens. People get insurance for that, although, although my insurance doesn't cover it because it's only natural events, and that's <laughs> not a natural event. But it is a tail event. So it's, it, it carries extreme impact, unfortunately, on the bad side. And a lot of things, we talked about this with Jared a little bit. We said tail events also happen to the upside, too. So it's not just always bad things, but that's what people remember because the financial media doesn't mind, doesn't really get excited talking about extreme events to the upside because no one's complaining and freaking out, but it's the extreme events to the downside that really cause the problem. Unfortunately, many investors have come to the conclusion that these rare events are impossible to predict. And therefore, there's nothing you can do other than buy and hold and sit it out which is tough. You know, we know we've talked about the emotions of investing. However, this explanation simply rids the investor or advisor of any responsibility. It's sort of the fatalistic attitude becomes, hey, it's a black swan. It's not my fault. So we can't do anything about it. However, let's talk a little bit about market outliers in the US. Let's take this all the way back to the 20s. This is an interesting topic because you see it a lot in the financial advisor media. And one of the biggest defenses of buy and hold, and remember, I have no problem with buy and hold. I think it's perfectly fine. But one of the biggest defenses is that demonstrating the effects of missing the best 10 days in the market. And I think this is very instructive, actually, and how that would affect the compound return to investors. However, a lot of times you see it, and it's perhaps one of the most misleading stats in our profession. because And there's a lot of academic papers that have looked at this, and we'll post them to the show notes. But they often don't mention the, what happens if you miss the worst 10 days as well. So they say, all right, so let's look at outliers. So if you, let's look at the worst and best 1% of all days. So that equates to about two to three days per year. So normal happens every year. Those worst days and best days are around a four to 5% gain and loss. We haven't seen many of those lately. I'd have to look it up on the last time, but on average, you'll see a few of those per year. Then if you look at the worst 0.1% of all days, which occur on average only every few years, that's a loss of 8% in a day or gain of 8%, 8, 9% roughly. But you've had worse. So in the US, we've had a 20% down day uh, back in 87. Most countries have seen these down 10, 15, 20. I think the highest was in Hong Kong, which lost a third in one day. We'll have to check that for foreign and developed. I, I can't remember. But the worst days... Is and in the best day we've ever seen in the U.S. back to the twenties is sixteen percent. Do these worst and best days tend to uh, net each other out? Here's the deal. So if you look at all days, and we'll just do this on daily level, and we're excluding dividends, so because it doesn't really matter for this analysis, but the dividends would accrue to both. All days about it's four point eight percent going back to nineteen twenties return annualized. You know, add on inflation, add on dividends, you get up to your historical 10%. But but let's call it 4.8. If you miss the best 1% of all days, it takes you down to a minus 7% return. I mean, think about that. I mean, that is an astonishing amount where in the 0.1%, it takes you down 3%. But, but the flip side is also true. If you miss the worst days, it makes your return much higher. Mm-hmm. So you have this scenario where people only talk about these worst and best, these best days have such a major impact and there's so few of them. Therefore, your chances of predicting when they occur are so slim, you have to buy and hold. Otherwise, you'll risk ruining your entire strategy. And that's, and that's generally true. However, 
that's kind of like it's taking the ball down to the five yard line and stopping there. And so if you extend the research and say, all right, let's look when they occur. When do the worst days occur? And when do the best days occur? Can we learn anything about that? What are people missing? As we know, we've talked about this on the podcast, markets are a collection of people. And people being human is a collection of emotions, greed, fear, jealousy, pride, envy, which is one of the biggest, all manifest themselves to the fullest in our capital markets. So when you're making money, you're thinking about the new car you're going to buy, how smart you are, how much smarter you are than your neighbor, the vacation you're going to take, second, third, fourth house you're going to buy. Part of the brain firing here is the same region and gets stimulated by many types of drugs. However, losing money, you're not opening your account statements in the mail. If you get them digitally now, you're deleting the emails. You're thinking about how dumb your neighbor was for recommending that stock. How are you going to pay for that second house? What about your kids? You just got fired. And you feel a significant revulsion to even thinking about investing. And the part of the brain that processes losses, money losses, is the same region that is stimulated by the flight response. So if you look at these kind of behavioral biases, and we'll get in depth more on this in future ones, but there's a great Andrew Lowe professor at MIT video called Technical Analysis and Academic Perspective that talks a lot about behavioral biases. But if you look at historically when they occur, you can actually predict when most of them will occur. And it's around two-thirds to 70% of them. And the indicator that we're going to be talking about here is a very simple trend-following indicator. So 200-day moving average, which simply is a way of finding the signal from the noise. It's the most common, probably, technical indicator out there, the most common trend-following. We also use what we call as the monthly equivalent, the 10-month simple moving average. And it's a way of just establishing signal from noise. So if, if a price is above the 200-day moving average, you're in an uptrend. If price is below the 200-day moving average, you're in a downtrend. And it's not just us talking about this has been around for 100 years. Charles Dow was talking about similar ideas in the early 20th century. Many, many people were talking about momentum and trend in the 1940s and 50s. And so there was actually a great book Tony Robbins put out called Money Master the Game, where he interviewed a lot of famous investors. And one of one of the top traders of all time, Paul Tudor Jones, who teaches a class at the University of Virginia, my alma mater, there's an interview with him in the book. I'm going to read two quotes real quick from him. And so Tony says, okay, are there any specific strategies for protecting your portfolio? And he says, I teach a class at UVA and I tell my students, I'm going to save you from going to business school. Here, you're getting a $100,000 class and I'm going to give it to you in two thoughts, okay? You don't need to go to business school. You've only got to remember two things. The first, you always want to be with whatever the predominant trend is. And so Tony says, okay, well, how do you determine the trend? He says, my metric for everything I look at is the 200-day moving average of closing prizes. I've seen too many things go to zero, stocks and commodities. The whole trick in investing is, how do I keep from losing everything? If you use the 200-day moving average rule, then you get out. You play defense and you get out. And Tony says, that was also considered one of the top three trades of all time in history, the 1987 crash, which Paul Tudor Jones was famously missed and got long bonds after. He says, did your theory about the 200-day moving average alert you to that one? He says, you got it. It had gone under the 200-day moving target at the top of the crash. I was flat. If you look at the 200-day moving average, one of the reasons why it works, you know, most people seem to think market timing is this magic elixir that it's going to tell you when to get in at market bottoms and when to get out at market tops. And you're going to magically have a vastly bigger return than buy and hold. And that's not the way it works. 
historically, market timing through trend following gives you a similar return as buy and hold. Sometimes it's it's a, quite a bit higher, but in general, expect similar return, but it vastly reduces the volatility and drawdowns. Why does it do that? Well, it does that because when markets are downtrending, they are much more volatile than when they're uptrending. If you look at where the worst 1% and 0.1% of days occur, 70% of them occur, 60 to 70%, it varies by the market, 60 to 70% of them occur after the market is already downtrending. Now, the great irony is 70% of the best days also occur when the market is already downtrending. And the reason being is if you think of a rubber band, it's simply that markets are much more volatile when markets are downtrending, but that makes sense. People are freaking out. They don't know what to do. The future is uncertain. They just lost 10, 20, 30, 50% of their portfolio. There's a lot of uncertainty. So simply it's volatility expansion. And so these days occur, we call it volatility clustering. So not to go down a mathematics rabbit hole, but if you avoid high volatility, your geometric return can be higher because you're, you're sitting on the sidelines avoiding uh, what we call these volatility gremlins, the difference between arithmetic and geometric returns. You end up with a higher return by missing both. So you actually want to miss the worst and best days. And so Mandelbrot actually has a great quote in his book, The Misbehavior of Markets, hugely big recommendation, wonderful book, where he says, what matters is the particular, not the average. Some of the most successful investors are those who did, in fact, get the timing right. If you look at some in the US, as with anything in investing, if it doesn't work elsewhere, you have to question, is it just data mining in one market? And so we've actually looked at this in an old paper called Where the Black Swans Hide, where we looked at it in all sorts of foreign markets. I think it was about 20 of them. And it turns out that we find similar results as the U.S., namely a small amount of outliers have a massive impact on performance, and the best and worst outliers tend to cluster when the market is already declining. However, if you miss the best and worst days, in every case, your compound return is higher than buy and hold. It sounds like if we use the moving average to try to protect us here, we're going to do far better. But one question is, you know, by definition, these black swans are unpredictable. Something hits and you're already going to be entering at a larger loss. You can't just immediately say, all right, we get to net out all the worst days. You're going to suffer some of the worst days, right? Because you're getting triggered. Well, so, so it depends. So when we're talking about black swans and market outliers, you know, one, realize that market outliers are normal. Not a normal distribution, but normal part of these type of distribution for financial markets. That's the beauty of trend following is you don't have to necessarily predict the black swans, the upside and downside, but rather just realize most of the large volatility occurs when markets are already declining. Now, this doesn't mean trend following is a magic elixir again. It's not some magic holy grail. And this is why so many people struggle with it. The same reason they struggle with buy and hold is that there's many periods where it doesn't work. So no investing strategy is going to work all the time. And so there's a, in case of trend following, there's two main drawbacks. One, a trendless market that kind of whipsaws side to side, you know, so you buy into a market that's starting to go up and then it goes back down and you sell and then it goes back up and you buy. And so back and forth, so it creates a lot of these losses. So a lot of people struggle with a system that doesn't have a really high percentage of winning trades. I think your model uses, um, 
the one month in terms of looking at when to be in or out based upon the 200 day moving average. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we publish because it ha- you can get data that goes back a lot farther with monthly data than daily data. So I, I think it's meaningless, which one I think, I think the vast majority, I don't think it matters if you use 50 day, 200 day, 40 week, 10 month in a market that's a whipsawing. Is there not an optimum well, but see, again, time? This is this, the problem with the whipsaw question is, you have to be able to predict when whipsaws will occur. So it's easy to look back and say, oh, the last few years were trendless in whatever market may be. Or, wow, trend falling. I mean, there's been a bull market since 2009. You know? Or, hey, trend falling worked great in 2008 and 2000, 2003. So, but that's backwards looking. So will there be a whipsaw market in the next five years? Who knows? You, the market could decline 80%. It could go up 80%. And so that's kind of the beauty of the indicators. You, you don't know what's going to the future is going to hold i think we kind of discussed this the other day is there any other indicator you might suggest that might give somebody an idea of whether or not we're entering a whipsaw market or just a down market that's going to sustain for a while real quick before that question is it another the other problem with trend following is it doesn't guarantee you you're going to miss a big down move so the 200 day moving average is an interesting example because had you used the 200 day moving average in 1987 you would have been out during the crash like paul tudor said mm-hmm. If you use the 10 month or anything longer than the 200, you would have been in during the crash. Mm-hmm. And so people that would look back at that, if you'd started writing about this or managing money in 86, that is a very binary outcome. So the guy that was out now manages billions or the guy that was in probably lost all of his clients. And so you have to have a long-term perspective. And the beauty of being a quant is that this averages out over you want to use as many markets as possible. Most CTAs trade 50 markets. You know, it's not going to always work through every market cycle. So we're talking five, 10 years in any one market, but it works in most of them most of the time. So if you look at gold, you look at commodities, you look at interest rates, you look at stocks, foreign stocks, trend volume works in almost all of them like over, over time. If you have the patience, to if you have with the patience. It. And so a lot of people look at trend following over the past number of years. Hey, it's done an awesome job in some markets. I mean, commodities phenomenal job missing the commodities debacle over the last few years where they've just had massive bear markets. Ironically, a lot of those signals are hitting buys right now, commodities. Commodities are in a strong uptrend this year, gold, uh, a lot of other commodities as well. Same thing with emerging. Emerging after this long downdraft is finally entering uh, into, into buy signals. U.S. stocks has been particularly challenging because in a bull market, there's not m- much that can perform outperform a bull market than just long only. Because you don't have every every small dip is is a chance for it to go back up. So the only thing that beats an uptrend in a bull market for for U.S. stocks, of course, is to have leverage and own more. You know, so the, kind of wrapping this up and thinking about it, kind of the main summary without going down the trend following rabbit hole, which we'd love to maybe in another podcast, is that stock market in general goes up about two thirds of the time. Almost all the stock market returns occur when the market is already uptrending. A great indicator on when to be out is is a trend-following type of indicator. The volatility is much higher when the market is declining. I think it usually is about 30% higher per market, usually on, on average. And so most of the best and worst days occur when the market is already declining. And the reason being is simply just because the volatility is higher. So you just stretch all the returns a little bit. And of course, the market is much riskier than than models that assume a normal distribution predict, but that's been well known for 70 years. You got anything else, Jeff, before we wrap it up? Well, I'm kind of curious. On the clustering of the worst down days, worst up days, 
Was there any study about the length of time or the timing involved in those clusters? And my broader question is, all right, let's say I'm getting greedy. Market starts going down. We hit some really bad down days. If I was somehow able to look at timing involved in the clustering, rather than wait for the 200-day to move above its average when I'm looking, when the rise is happening, maybe I get back in earlier and can capture more of the gains. Is that just being too greedy? Well, here's, here's the challenge, is that the U.S. stock market has declined over 80%. You look at Greece right now, down 90% plus. And so this is the challenge of catching the proverbial falling knife. Right. And afterwards, you can look back and say, you know, the cliche works either way, where the media will look back and anoint some trader a genius because he predicted he went all in at the bottom in the bottom in 09, right? Mm-hmm. Had that market continued to go down 80%, then that guy would have been out of business. And a lot of value stock managers got carried out in body bags in 08, 09. Some of these guys started buying financials way too early and then proceeded to lose 70%. You know, we've talked about this happening in a number of other places. So predicting bottoms is really tough. You know, we, we talk a lot about this on valuation, though. We say when markets get cheap, you can start buying into them, but that's a totally different philosophy where you say, all right, rush is cheap. I'm going to buy it, but I'm only going to update this, or this is going to be a two, five, 10 year hold. And maybe I have a value portfolio that we run and it only updates once a year. Now, my favorite combination, of course, is the intersection of value and trend. Mm-hmm. So buying a cheap market that's entering an uptrend. So right now you have that with Russia. You have that with Brazil. You don't have it with Europe. I mean, my God, we're just waiting so long for Europe to get their act together in the equity markets because they're almost universally cheap, but they're not entering uptrends. Russia and Brazil are. So that's really the, the best overlap when you can find that, that's when I think you can get the really big returns. Okay, so if we're looking for actionable takeaways for listeners right now, it sounds like you mentioned commodities might be getting signaled as a uh, good investment right now. You just mentioned Russia. Well, there's, there's a lot lining up for emerging markets and commodities. One, they've been down multiple years in a row. So three years down in a row, we talked out about that in a prior podcast, usually lays the groundwork for big returns in the next two years. Two, they're cheap. Emerging markets are certainly cheap. Some countries are cheaper than others. Commodity is a little hard to value as far as traditional value indicators, but a lot of other shops like AQR have done research that shows you can simply use a three, five-year trailing return on a lot of commodities as a way to look at value. And a lot of these commodities have just been getting absolutely destroyed over the past five years. Also, no one wants them. So we think those are probably great opportunities. You're starting to see them show up in a lot of the relative strength. Real estate has been on fire for a while. That's been in an uptrend and outperforming. And of course, bonds, one of the most hated asset classes out there consistently for a long time has had monster returns. I was actually, and we'll probably talk about this in a, in a follow-up podcast, but they've, they've uh, been actually having wonderful returns too. So let, let, let's wrap it up before this one gets too long. We end each episode with the things I find beautiful, useful, or downright magical. Last time, Jeff, I remember, said some kind of shady email service. What do you, what do you have for us this time? <laughs> Uh, well, I wasn't really prepared very well this time, so I asked someone here in our office, and she swears by a site called Uvu, that's O-O-V-O-O.com, and apparently what this is, is it's video conferencing, think of like FaceTime, it's video conferencing that you can do at the same time with up to 12 friends, and it's free, so... Uh, <laughs> also sounds kind of shady, <laughs> sounds like my nightmare. Well, it'd be good for families, right, across right, the country, right. you could bring in, you know, it's, it's interesting, because... Every time we've had half a dozen guests on this point, the episodes, 
I haven't heard of a single thing anyone has suggested. Not a single one of them. I mean, certainly not Patrick's axe. All right, so mine, uh, what's the website again? Uvu, O-O-V-O-O.com. Mine is completely different. It is a Korean chili sauce created by (laughs) David Chang, who's the chef at Momofuku. And you can buy this off their website, and it is kind of this funky thick ketchup but it's like a dark magenta color i put it on absolutely everything sounds questionable it's really good and but i like sauces like i'm a huge lozano fan from costa rica texas pete from hometown north carolina that's a good one anyway when are you going to give us more of your uh, personal recipes yeah well that, that wasn't one of my personal recipes the nancy silverton that's hers i, I don't have oh, any yeah, per- i outsource personal. mine believe me <laughs> i have no interest in in coming up with any of my own All right, so wind it down. Look, thanks for taking the time to listen again today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag, which we'll start doing in upcoming episodes. That's feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.